This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals, the subtitle The Second Coming of Christ and a further subdivision The Old Testament Colour and Background to the New Testament Teaching Concerning that Second Coming. And this is number six of that particular series. It is our custom in these meetings to read together a portion of scripture. So those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to switch off for a moment and join us, we are going to read Zechariah chapter 1 and 2. In this present series of studies, we are preparing our minds in the only legitimate way, I think, to look at the New Testament revelation concerning the second coming of Christ, and that is to allow the Old Testament to speak to us, supply us with the imagery that we shall meet in the New, so that instead of plunging into texts and chapters without preparation, we shall come a little bit ready to consider them as a part of a great context. That is true, of course, in the study of any part of Scripture, whether it's doctrine or practice or dispensation or or any other aspect of truth. It has a relationship, and that relationship is vital. Now, in this series, we have looked at the testimony of the book of Job to the fact of a Redeemer that was yet to come and stand upon the earth. We have seen the testimony of Enoch, which is recorded in the epistle of Jude, We have seen the prophetic witness of the days of Saul and David and Solomon. We have looked at the prospect and glorious witness of the prophet Isaiah. And here, after looking at the book of Daniel last week, we have reached the prophet Zechariah. So we're gathering, I trust, by such. Uh, There are good many difficulties which we have to pass by without explanation for the time being, but we're gathering a certain amount of colour, a certain amount of atmosphere, something that we can bring with us. When we read the New Testament, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. We shall know that that's referring to Daniel, the 12th chapter, whereas a good many people have got the remotest idea that it is so. Well now, first of all, does Zechariah speak about the second coming? Well, you read just now in chapter 2, verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come. Three little words, but there it is. That's the ground of their rejoicing. No longer an absent king, but lo, I come. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And anticipating the chapter which we shall look at presently, it says his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And those words are practically echoed in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles when our Saviour led his disciples out to the Mount of Olives and spoke his closing words to them and while he yet spoke he ascended and a cloud received him out of their sight. And an angel said to the disciples why do you stand looking up? This same Jesus whom we have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner. If that's not explicit what is? To try to spiritualise that away into the conversion of somebody in a chapel like this is too absurd even to discuss. That is a literal emphasis upon the personal return of Christ to this very earth. Well now, there's a link too with other prophecies um, in the chapter 1 of Zechariah, verse 12. 
Uh, I'm sorry, yes, chapter 1, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these three score and ten years? Do you remember? In the prophet Daniel, we read in the ninth chapter that Daniel was reading the prophecy of, of the Jeremiah, in which he learned that 70 years of desolation of Jerusalem, which had been brought in by Nebuchadnezzar, was almost run out and beginning to come on the horizon. And he made it a matter of prayer. And while he prayed about the 70 years, the angel Gabriel came and said, Oh Daniel, greatly beloved, I've come to tell you about 70 times 7, where the whole purpose of God will be completed and Christ's kingdom will be set up. Seventy times seven, an anticipation of the, or, or the other, the seventy times seven, an anticipation of that greater period of when we have the 490 years of prophecy that is yet to run its course, part of it done, part of it waiting. That, of course, that of course is uh, another link which we must keep in mind. And then there's a strong emphasis in this book on the fact that Jerusalem is the centre. If you're asked to what spot of earth will the Son of God return, he will return. He will go back to the same place that he left. This little strip of land, which has been the battleground of so many nations, has known the footsteps of the Son of God in his humiliation. They're going to know his footsteps in his coming glory. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And in case you say all the Mount of Olives is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and that means, well, we never bother about that, look at the chapter 14, will you, and see what it says. Chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. And for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Well now, you can't very well spiritualize the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east, you see. This is a definite geographical spot. And if you're not satisfied with that, he goes on to say, And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. So, unless we are going to just turn the book into a sort of hit and miss here we have a definite reference to the fact that this second coming is a specific fact a specific reality and it will take place in time and in that very sphere of course the references to Jerusalem are abundant, chapter 1 again <coughs> verse 14 so the angel communed with me and said unto me, cry thou saying Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great jealousy. Verse 16, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Can you hear the words of Isaiah being echoed again? Comfort ye, 
Comfort ye my people, say unto Jerusalem, Thy king cometh. Preach the good tidings to Jerusalem, the Lord cometh. Cry these words, so we have it here. And then in chapter 2 we get the actual measuring. I lifted up mine eyes and again and looked, and behold a man with a measuring line. And <clears throat> Zechariah was one of those people who were always asking questions. You'll find he says, I said, what be these, and what are those, and what's the other? And the Lord never said to him, oh, don't keep bothering me with questions. He said, that's the stuff, that's what we want. Not an apathetic approach to scripture. What's the measuring of this mean? Oh, he said, don't you understand? He's measuring it because the Lord is, has, has declared that he's going to lift that land back out of its desolation. It shall be built, and those who spoil it shall be uh, recompensed according to their deeds. So, it says in um, verse 10 of chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord of hosts. You'll find other passages that this glory that the earth is going to have is connected with the time when he shall reign in Mount Zion before his ancients gloriously. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord. Now there's another uh, reference to a similar thought in the prophet Isaiah, that when that day comes, the very nations of the earth will say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. There we shall learn his law and walk in its light. We get it again at the end of this chapter, in case you may say, well, I don't quite think that necessarily means literally. Uh, that means that they'll all be going to church. The nations will all be going to... Oh, there are people getting pretty well near this with regard to their spiritualizing. Well, now look at the end, the last chapter. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. That seems pretty specific, doesn't it? And, you notice what it says? It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations. That's a sad thought, isn't it? A dark thought. And you remember in the book of the Revelation, a third part of the trees, a third part of the sea, a third part of the cities of the earth. Oh, what an anticipation in this book of the wreck that mankind's going to yet make of this creation before they're done with it. But God knows. And he says, the nations that are left, after that's all over, shall come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But suppose they won't come. Which shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts? Even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, they shall be, there shall be the plague. Well, this is literal. This is what God intends. And we gather from the scriptures generally, the prophets particularly, that the the people of Israel are to be a kingdom of priests. Jerusalem is to be physically elevated and be a centre from which the law of the Lord will go out. And the figure is used, we're told in one of the prophets, uh, that a river of water, of life, is going to flow out from the temple at Jerusalem. And wherever that river flows, life comes instead of death. And it flows down until it passes a little village called En Gedi, and if you look on your map, you'll find En Gedi is on the shore of the Dead Sea. There's a picture. 
Here's the prophetic statement. The knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as that living water covers the dead sea. What a picture. That's God's sequel. That's God's answer to the ignorance that is blinding the minds and deadening the understanding. And so we've got now this big emphasis upon Jerusalem. And in chapter 4, we have two witnesses. And these two witnesses are brought forward again in the book of the Revelation, you remember? They bear their witness before the end comes. They are called the two witnesses. There's a peculiar figure. The um, candlesticks are lighted by being connected with olive trees, which of course is symbolical. But notice what it says. Verse 5. Oh, verse 4. Here's Zechariah again. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me and saying, What are these, my Lord? I hope you'll do that, friends, many a time. I hope I'll do it many a time. You look at the scripture and you pass by on the other side. That's not the way to treat it. You look at the scripture, you say, What could it mean? Oh, the Lord said, I was waiting for you to say that. And you give you illumination as you wait upon him. So here it is. Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, nor by leagues of nations, nor by... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm adding a bit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's why the olive tree's there. All the intentions of men, good as they may be, all the contracts they sign and the covenants they make are all frail and all to be broken. Israel will never have to look back and say, I owe my independence, I owe the restoration to my national position, to the Balfour Declaration or to the whatever else it may be. No, says God. The prophet says that the Lord has made this statement. He that scattered Israel will gather him. The same one that scattered is the one that gathers. So we have it here. And who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace, unto it. Moreover the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. So, the building of a house by the returned captives from Babylon was a pledge that one day a greater building was to take place along similar lines but in a vaster extent. Now come back to chapter 1 again. Verse 11. Or verse um, 8 onwards to 11. You've got these four horses. And of course, if we never read the Bible, we've seen placarded outside the cinemas years ago, the four horses of the apocalypse. Well, here they are. We've got the four horses indicated in the book of the Revelation, specifically to do with the time when the Lord puts forth his power and assumes authority. Into the hand of the Lamb of God is given the seven-sealed book, and he breaks the seals. The seals are now broken, and he puts in the claim to that kingdom which is his. And the four horses are associated with that claim. Things have happened. And here we have these four horses. Uh, verse 8, and behind him were red horses speckled and white. 
And they stood among the myrtle trees, you notice. And the Jewish commentators are quick to seize the thought that the myrtle is the word Esther. You know the book of Esther? Well, Esther in the Hebrew language is a myrtle. So uh, we would have called her Myrtle, but they called her Esther because they didn't speak English, poor people. They only spoke Hebrew, you see. But don't you see the point? Do you know the peculiar character of the book of Esther? It's been commented on by folks and some have taken an attitude against it. They say, oh, the book of Esther can't be a part of Scripture because there's not a single reference to the name of God in it. You see? And you say, oh, you say so. Because I have... And I've shown you at different times a scroll of the book of Esther and I've patiently gone through it and underlined with red ink four different occasions when the name Jehovah, the four-letter name of God, comes in an acrostic form. And lest you should say, oh, well, that's an accident, you'll find that somewhere. Does this sound like an accident? The first occurrence, it's the first letter in the four words going forward. The second occurrence is the last letter of the, of the four words going forward. And then it's the first letter of the words going backward. And then it's the last letter of the words going backward. And if I've muddled it mixed up, well, you look it up and you'll find that whichever way it goes, backwards or forwards, it's too complicated to be an accident. Look, here's this people. They're subjected to the foreign power. There's a plot against their very lives and existence. And there's no word for God in the book. And yet the hand of God was at work secretly. That's the story. God says, oh yes, you may have your uh, uh, destroyers because they said we've walked through, through the earth, all the earth city still in the, at rest. You said, that's a fine thing. Oh, we said, no. Ease and rest may be a bad thing if there's wickedness to be dealt with, if there's misery to be uh, restored, if this people of my love are still downtrodden and cast out. So the myrtle see the work of God silently. And then, as we can't go on like this, the warning signal will go soon that I've reached the end once more. I turn to chapter, uh, the end of um, chapter 2 and on to chapter 3. Verse 12 of chapter 2. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh. That's a word for us all. Don't you object. There are some who have strongly objected that it should never be. Now look at the objection in the next chapter. And he showed me Joshua. Now the books of the Bible are divided in the Old Testament into three groups. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms or the wisdom and poetic portions. And our Saviour endorsed those three divisions. Now, the first book in the prophets is the book of Joshua. And the last book in the prophets is Zechariah, the group of which formed the minor prophets, and Joshua. In the first book, it's Joshua, the captain of the Lord's host. In the last book, it's Joshua, the high priest. And those two titles come in the book of Hebrews, the captain and the priest, Christ himself. There's a whole of prophecy, begun and ending, on the word Joshua, which is the Old Testament word Jesus. Jesus is a medium Greek pronunciation of Joshua. So it begins and ends on that note. The king priest in symbol. But all oh, what about symbols? Think of David. 
chosen by God, the anointed and beloved of God. Look at the way that man slipped. Look at the way he went. He had to confess his sin and he had to be cleansed, the same as the rest of us. But he was a type of the true king nevertheless. And so, all the priests of Israel, in symbol they were anticipating the coming great priest, but in themselves. So, we have in chapter 3 these words. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and someone else there. Not four horses this time, not four horns that have scattered, but the leader of them all, Satan, standing at his right hand to resist him. Now the word resist is the Hebrew word Satan. The word Satan is a noun and a verb in this statement. I'll put it this way. And Satan standing at his right hand to Satan him. He was acting in character. Antagonistic to the purpose of God. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord of the chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Don't we get those words in the end of the epistle of Jude? As though he's speaking about the same thing, and that needs some cleansing, some of the things in the book of Jude. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before them, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Here is the, in anticipation, Israel at last entering into their high calling. When you come to the book of the Revelation, the first chapter, you hear them say, Unto him that loved us, and loosed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us a kingdom of priests. The prophet Isaiah said, The nations of the earth shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. The church today is not a priesthood, and there are no priests in evidence just now. And if you doubt this, read the whole of Paul's epistles. Read his 14 epistles, and you'll discover that he never uses the word priest in any of them except the epistle to the Hebrews, which wasn't written to you. There are no priests. Christ is the only priest, and he's absent. And he could not be a priest, it says, at that time upon earth, because this symbol was in the line of Judah. Now, we have this man, the representative of, of the people of God, filthy. And yet God stoops to cleanse. Filthy is spoken of the daughters of Jerusalem in Isaiah, yet he cleanses. What about ourselves? We have to take the same position. If he didn't stoop, not one of us would know salvation. So we, we just sum, sometimes sum these things up. We say, here he is uh, cleansed, clothed, crowned. Providing you remember that the crown is the priest's mitre and not a kingly crown. This is the priest. And so there's the pledge that Israel would enter into their glorious inheritance and be cleansed and clothed and crowned. Then a little further down is a peculiar title. Verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit with thee, before thee. For they are men wondered at. Men of wonder, men of miracle, men of sign. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. That's a strange thing to call a person a branch, isn't it? 
There must be a reason for it. And we may have to search a little bit. But you see at the bottom of this chart, I hope you can see from where you sit, that I've given you the four great titles. In the first case we have, Behold the Branch. Zechariah, um, what is that? No, that's, uh, that's a, a mistake. That is, what is it, chapter 9? Let's make sure. Well, we have to say 9, 9 to that. That means no, no. That's chapter 4. You see, that's one of these slips that even, even I make mistakes, friends. Yes. So would you if you had all these things to do, as we call it, in the Tutney Shuffle. But there we have the emphasis upon the fact that he was the branch. And also, in the next case, we have in the prophet Isaiah, my servant, the branch. And then we have in the prophet Zechariah again in chapter 6, a, a similar reference, chapter 12. And he spake unto him, saying that, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Here's the building of the temple. And then we have in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, Behold the branch of the Lord. Four times we get this prophetic title. And there are four Gospels. And the four Gospels give you the king, Matthew, the servant, Mark, the man, Luke, the only one who goes back to Adam, and John, in the beginning, was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The four aspects. So there, all this second coming, and all this pledge of the restoration of this people, and all their cleansing and going into their glorious inheritance, is absolutely depending upon the fact that he came and took that position and is the guarantee that the word of God shall go forth and be blessed. Well then if we look a little bit further along this, this uh, prophecy, missing a good many things out, uh, look at chapter 7 just by way of seeing that this emphasis upon the restoration of Jerusalem is still in mind. Verse 7, chapter 7, 7, Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her, when men inhabited the south of the plain? He says, I'm reminding you that once you were a blessed people, and you've been scattered, but as I say, the scripture says, He that scattered Israel shall gather. Well, then if you come to chapter 12, we must pass a good many things for you to look at and supply for yourself, possibly. But chapter 12, we have a very blessed emphasis. Verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I wonder whether any of the nations that are planning to come against Jerusalem bother to read these things. We know full well that they are planning to do it. Only about a week or a fortnight ago there were headlines again in the paper where I think it was Nasser, the Egyptian, he says he's still out to blot out that people, turn them out and rid them. He's almost quoting scripture, come let us blot them out from being a people. And the Lord says, I've got a word to say about that too. He says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And what will he do with this poor, persecuted, scattered people? I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
the spirit of grace and supplication. They're going at last to bow the knee. They are called, you remember, in the Bible, a stiff-necked people. And did you know if you have a stiff neck, it, it stops you from bending your knee? <laughs> you, you'll discover it would. Oh yes, they were a stiff-necked rebellious people and at long last, a spirit of grace and supplication. One day, every knee shall bow. These people are going to anticipate the day when every knee shall bow. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Who's speaking? Well, all the way down here, it's the Lord who's speaking. The Lord of the Old Testament is speaking. Long before the New Testament was written, the Lord of the Old Testament says they should look upon me. The Lord of the Old Testament, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Anticipating the great condescension and the title of Christ in the New. And they at last shall give him the mourning that was his due. Every family apart, every tribe apart. And verse, the, verse 1 of chapter 13, the consequence. And in that day shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. God never hides the fact that he's dealing with a sinful people. If you say, Oh, you know, I do like the Jews. Well, I don't think we're all perfectly right. Well, you can't have a blanket statement and say no Jews, but good many of the Jews I've met, I don't like them. The way they act. But of course, if you'd have been a separated people, if you'd have been persecuted, if you'd been scattered all over the earth, if in the Middle Ages you found they wouldn't employ you, and if you put money in the bank, they'd steal it from you, You'd invent the word jewel, Jew, J-E-W, jewellery, and carry your money about in a little bag, and you'd start lending money when people wanted it because they wouldn't employ you. Oh, these people have got a virility, they couldn't stop them. But they became hated. They were God's people. If you saw a notice up Christian Park, no Jew admitted, that's what used to be in Russia, you begin to realise they had to fight for their life, you see. Crowded into a ghetto that wasn't allowed to expand and get bigger, even though they had big families. Marked with a tab upon them, so that whenever they went, they knew by the yellow badge that they were Jews. You remember old Shylock? You spit upon my Jewish gabardine. You called me dog. Hath the dog dust much monies? You remember? That's the spirit. Well, here it is. They're going to look upon him and they pierced. And that day means the day of their deliverance, the day of their salvation, the day when Israel shall be born again. A nation anew. And what's going to happen? Well, this is here. First of all, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And then chapter 14. At the close of chapter 14, after emphasizing the Lord being king over the earth in that day, let's see that for ourselves, chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall there be one Lord, and his name one. 
And then if you still doubt whether God is speaking about a literal city, try to preach a sermon on this next verse and spiritualize it all. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. It shall be lifted up and inhabited in a place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's wine presses. If that doesn't mean a literal city with spots that people knew, what does it mean? Just simply nothing. So, God has pledged. Do you remember another passage? When he makes a new covenant with the house of Israel, he calls upon us to say that if the ordinances of heaven shall depart, then he'll go back on his word. So you and I take our stand on the passage in Romans chapter 11 that Israel at the present moment are enemies because of the gospel but beloved because of the fathers for the gifts and calling of God are without a change of mind. Let's be thankful for we stand there too. If he could go back on his pledge word to Israel he might go back on his pledge word to us. And so we stand or fall together in that particular. And men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now I want you to look for a moment at that word utter destruction. Not merely destruction, but utter destruction. Have you read, or do you remember reading, the effect of the explosion of that first atom bomb? The effect it had upon people? I don't want to make your flesh creep like the fat boy in Dickens, but I do ask you to notice what God has embedded in this passage here. I didn't write it, Zechariah wrote it at the inspiration of God. Listen to this. Utter destruction. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite all people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Read the evidences from the doctors about those who were at, came within the range of that terrific explosion and you've got it. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Oh, I don't like reading the words, but they're there. A warning to the nations that are going to use this deadly thing for the way to come back upon themselves. And you remember the last vial of wrath that's poured out in the book? The very last vial of wrath in the book of the Revelation is poured out upon the air. Why? The prince of the power of the air is there involved. Well now, one further thought, and this is an important one, we'll leave those terrible plagues and we'll get to the end of the chapter, the last two verses. Verse 20. In that day shall there be unto the, upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. You notice the holiness unto the Lord is stepped up and put into capital letters. They were the words that were on the uh, mitre that Aaron wore. Holiness unto the Lord. But here we've got a change. It doesn't say there's going to be priests or a priest. It says the very pots and the bowls. The very things that have to do with daily life are going to be holiness unto the Lord. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take them and see therein. Don't you see, friends? So long as you have a temple, which is a holy place, and a priesthood, 
which is a holy set of people you haven't got the truth in. There's one city which is called the holy city. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. And you remember, your attention is drawn to this fact that in the holy city there isn't a temple. True holiness is never there until it's including everyone that's there. A mere separated priesthood and a mere place of worship is an indication that you're not quite there yet. It's only when the pots in the people's kitchens are as holy as the vessels in the temple that you can say, at last, at last, God has attained unto his goal and purpose. Don't magnify these things. Oh, what a blessing it is to be able to come within the four walls of this little chapel. But what a blessing it would be when we don't want a little chapel. When all day long and all night long and all the time we shall be involved willy-nilly, breathing it as it were the very atmosphere by which we live, the word of God. Not turning aside for one hour in a week. That makes us a holy people. You see, this is something which has not yet been and ever can be unless the Lord is behind it. And so we have every pot. And then the last word. In that day, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. No more the Canaanite. Why the Canaanite? When he comes into the story in the time of Abraham, and there he is inhabiting the land before Abraham can get there, and although... God was very merciful with regard to some, saying, well, there are some there, spare them because they don't know the right hand from the left. He never allowed Israel to evangelize the Canaanites, for they were the evil seed. They ought never to have been there, and they have been a plague all the way through like the tares that were so mixed up with the wheat, and only at long last at the end can it be said, no more Canaanites. You could add that to the blessed no mores that you find in the last book of the Bible. No more curse, that's Genesis 3 gone. No more death, that's the same chapter. No more crying, no more tears, no more Canaanite. At long last, the family of faith, without a disturbing element. Oh, what a bright and blessed world this groaning earth of ours will be. When from his throne the tempter hurled, shall leave it, O Lord, to thee.